This is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. From the National Bureau of Asian Research in Washington, D.C., this is Dan Um. Asia Insight is a podcast series from NBR. We interview top Asia experts to discuss key issues affecting the Indo-Pacific region, particularly with a view to informing U.S. policy and businesses. For the month of August, we will continue to release the recorded public sessions from the Asia Policy Assembly, a major policy conference organized by NBR and the National Defense University. This is the fourth of five recorded sessions that we're releasing. This episode features a discussion about America's alliances and partnerships in the midst of strategic competition. Rory Kamphausen moderates this session with Ambassador Kazutoshi Aikawa and Ambassador James Moriarty. Let me introduce our guests. Roy Kamphausen is president of NBR. In April of 2018, Roy was appointed by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to be a commissioner on the U.S.-China Economic Security and Review Commission. Prior to NBR, Roy served as a career U.S. Army officer, including assignments as China Policy Director in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, China Strategist for the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and a military attache at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. Ambassador Kazutoshi Aikawa is the Deputy Chief of Mission at the Japanese Embassy in Washington, D.C. The ambassador previously served as Director General of Disarmament, Nonproliferation, and Science Department at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Japan. He also held positions as Minister and Political Coordinator of the Permanent Mission of Japan to the UN and Minister and Deputy Chief of Mission at the Embassy of Japan in Iran. Ambassador James Moriarty is Chairman of the Board of Trustees of the American Institute in Taiwan. He previously served as Special Assistant to the President of the United States and Senior Director for Asia at the National Security Council. He's led the political sessions at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing and American Institute in Taiwan and was the Ambassador to Bangladesh and Nepal. As you see, we have a distinguished group of guests who provide a great depth of knowledge and experience in informing and implementing U.S. policy towards Asia. In this discussion, Ambassadors Aikawa and Moriarty ID the characteristics of a successful alliance, discuss the unique relationship between Taiwan and the United States, and analyze the current state of relations between the United States and Japan. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Asia Insight. Go ahead and take your seats. We'll get started with our last plenary session before our final keynote speaker, Assistant Secretary Randy Shriver. Thank you all for hanging in there. Uh, I'm Roy Kamphausen at NBR. I direct our research efforts. It's my privilege to host and moderate this last panel. Our title is America's Alliances and Partnerships in the Midst of Strategic Competition. We've spoken a great deal the last two days about strategic competition about the United States' relationship with China and what the future might portend. And we've touched to some degree on American relationships with our allies and partners. We're going to spend the bulk of this panel focusing on that latter topic. And if you think of those relationships from the perspective of mid-2019, there's a lot of tough things that are going on, right? The administration is has asked our allies to take up a much greater role in burden sharing, to additionally plus up their own defense spending. It's talked about using the national security exemption to impose tariffs on the imports of important goods from our, including from our allies. And so this could be perceived at this moment to be a very tough period of time for America's alliance relationships. I want to take a really big leap and take a different perspective and then come back to the present and take advantage of the great insights that our two panelists have to to maybe take a little bit of a different look. I'm convinced, personally, 
that when the history of the late 20th, early 21st century is written, particularly the military history of this period, the central judgment that historians will make is that the greatest military power of the day chose in almost every circumstance to operate with allies and partners. A choice that was not forced upon, but one which it took, both for operational reasons, but also for grand strategic reasons. From the perspective of the future, looking back to today, I think that's an important judgment that historians will make. It then expended great national resources during times of peace to sustain and build those relationships, both in terms of the dedication of national assets and people, distinguished ambassadors, but also resources in terms of budget to both maintain overseas bases and the presence that they supported. And it cared deeply about building interoperability. It worked on issues of shared values. It cared about the political systems in, in the countries with which it was in alliance relationships. It did all of these things. And I think the history will say this was an important contribution and a central understanding that one has to have of this period of time. So then you're saying to yourself, so Camphausen, you have two ambassadors next to you, not a an admiral and a general. Why are you starting with this premise? Well, I think that's part of the story when we think about our alliance relationships and the partnerships that we have, but it's certainly not the only one. So the second point I'd make by way of introduction reflects on a study that we did at NBR in 2009. And it was uh, entitled, it was about the US-Japan alliance it was a very tough period in our alliance relationship. There were questions from Japan as to whether this alliance was suited to the purposes of a modernizing and emerging Japan. There were questions in the United States about whether our alliance partner was up to the tasks we were asking of them. And so this study really said, what are the expectations that each has from the other that is not being met? And how do we unpack that in ways which can strengthen the alliance, not contribute to its demise? A central finding is that the military component of our alliance relationship is just one. And despite my first point, which is that history will say this was a remarkable achievement of the greatest power of the era, it's certainly not the only aspect. And in fact, we found that to the degree that we focus our efforts on things well beyond military interoperability and, the sh and our shared response to security challenges, that was a pathway to strengthening our alliance relationship with Japan, I think there's broad ac applicability to a variety of our relationship. So I want to come back to this idea as to what are the contributions that diplomacy, the things which skilled practitioners can do in furthering alliance relationships, maybe in the Q&A after we have presentations from our distinguished presenters. Let me begin by way of introduction. Ambassador Jim Moriarty is chairman of the Board of Trustees of the American Institute in Taiwan. He's also a former two-time ambassador of the United States to Nepal and Bangladesh. Perhaps critically, he was the political minister counselor in Beijing from the period 1998 to 2001, and we had an opportunity to work closely together during that time. Maybe most importantly, we played basketball together every Thursday night for most of that period of time, and one of us kept playing uh, after he left Beijing, and the other maybe didn't play as much as he should have. Uh, but <laughs> Jim, we look forward to your comments, and he, he speaks as the chairman of the American Institute of Taiwan. He'll talk about that important relationship the United States has, but I think his expertise can take us well beyond that. Ambassador Kazakawa is deputy chief of mission of the Japanese embassy in the United States. He's also Japan's permanent observer to the Organization of American States here in Washington, 
He's Director General, former Director General of the Disarmament, Nonproliferation, and Science Department of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He's got a 30-year career in both functional and regional assignments. And very importantly, he has a law degree from Columbia University, where I went to graduate school as well. So <laughs> he's got a deep connection to us here in the United States through his study. Let's begin with Jim and then Kaz, and then we'll have some discussion and look forward to your comments as well. Ambassador. Yeah, Roy, thank you for that very kind introduction and those very thoughtful comments on the way forward. I, of course, am here to speak about a very important, important partner of the U.S. in the Asia-Pacific region, Indo-Pacific region. This year marks the 40th anniversary of the Taiwan Relations Act. Over those 40 years, the United States and Taiwan have built a comprehensive, durable, and mutually beneficial partnership grounded in our shared interests. Common values such as support for democracy and human rights have brought us ever closer. Taiwan's transformation from an island ruled by martial law into a beacon of democracy is one of the major developments of the late 20th and early 21st centuries. A great accomplishment for the people of Taiwan that inspires not just Americans, but many around the world. Today, I would like to discuss the current state of this unique, unofficial relationship in the economic, security, and people-to-people -people realms. I will also touch briefly on U.S. support for Taiwan's meaningful participation in the international community and on the troubling state of cross-strait relations. Taiwan's continued economic security and vitality are of key focus for the United States. Our economic ties are extensive, as we have grown to become each other's 11th and second largest trading good partners, respectively. Taiwan is a top 20 importer of U.S. services and a top purchaser of U.S. agricultural exports and intellectual property. The stock of bilateral foreign direct investment between the United States and Taiwan exceeds $25 billion. And once again this year, Taiwan sent the largest delegation of any of our partners to the Select USA Investment Summit, another sign of the strength of our economic ties. Security cooperation stands as another pillar of the U.S.-Taiwan relationship. The United States has a natural interest in peace throughout the Indo-Pacific region. It is this enduring interest in peace and security that undergirds the U.S. policy as articulated in the Taiwan Relations Act not only to provide Taiwan with arms of a defensive character, but also to maintain, and I quote here, our capacity to resist any resort to force or other forms of coercion that would jeopardize the security or social or economic system of the people on Taiwan. Consistent with the Taiwan Relations Act, the United States will continue to make available to Taiwan defense articles and services necessary to enable Taiwan to maintain a sufficient self-defense capacity. To that end, in June 2017, the U.S. announced plans to sell $1.42 billion in military equipment to Taiwan under the FMS program. That has been followed by maintenance and training support cases with estimated costs of $330 million and $500 million respectively which will support continued training for Taiwan's F-16 pilots. This policy contributes to stability across the Taiwan Strait 
by providing Taiwan with the credibility and confidence needed to pursue constructive interactions with Beijing. But security relations with Taiwan are about much more than arms sales. Taiwan's key leaders understand the need to overhaul Taiwan's security concept by embracing modern, resilient, and cost-effective approaches, as well as innovative ways to employ existing capabilities. The United States wholeheartedly supports this effort. Through AIT and its counterpart, Tecro, the United States is working to help promote the successful transformation of Taiwan's defense capabilities, including specific initiatives like the overhaul of Taiwan's reserve forces. A third pillar of our relationship, the people-to-people -people component, continues to flourish. The Fulbright program in 2017 celebrated 60 years of educational exchanges between the United States and Taiwan. Taiwan remained the seventh largest source of international students in the United States in 2018. Through an AIT TECRO agreement, the two sides allow their passport holders to apply for each other's trusted traveler program, making Taiwan our third global entry partner in East Asia. That is a, a significant development that facilitates travel between the United States and Taiwan. As chairman, I was pleased to celebrate AIT's move this year into the new state-of-the-art office complex in Taipei. Only nine years in the making, or 15, depending on how you count it. Uh, it is a beautiful facility. And just as important, this magnificent facility serves as an important symbol of the U.S. commitment to Taiwan and of the close ties that link the people of the United States and those of Taiwan. Recognizing how much Taiwan has to offer the international community, the U.S. will continue to support Taiwan's membership in international organizations where statehood is not a requirement for membership, as well as meaningful participation in international organizations where statehood is a, a requirement. Taiwan should be able to contribute its expertise to help tackle a range of regional and global issues. As but one example, public health is a prominent sector where Taiwan could and should play a significant international role. That is why the United States, in collaboration with like-minded countries, continues to support Taiwan's meaningful participation in the World Health Organization and as an observer at the World Health Assembly. Along with efforts to support Taiwan's meaningful participation in international organizations, the U.S. looks for other ways for Taiwan to increase its contributions to global challenges. The Global Cooperation and Training Framework, we call that the GCTF, launched by AIT and TECRO, its Taiwan counterpart, in 2015, combined U.S. and Taiwan resources and capabilities to help partners throughout the Indo-Pacific region address pressing global challenges on matters like humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, public health, energy, women's empowerment, law enforcement, media literacy, and the digital economy. Through the Japan-Taiwan Exchange Association, Japan is adding its expertise to the GCTF by co-hosting workshops beginning this year. 
Taiwan also deserves praise for standing in solidarity with the US and other members of the international community on a number of key global challenges. As a member of the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS, Taiwan has contributed to demining and other stabilization efforts in Iraq and Syria. As you can see, impressive growth has characterized ties between the people of the United States and the people of Taiwan across a broad array of interests. The many positive developments in the U.S.-Taiwan partnership over the past few years reflect the strength of those ties. However, in contrast to those strengthening ties, the developments in cross-strait relations over the past year have been deeply concerning. The administration honors our One China policy based on the TRA and the three U.S.-China joint communiques. However, observers in the United States both outside and inside government, including a broad spectrum of members of Congress, are troubled that China has escalated its pressure against Taiwan. Increased and increasingly alarming PLA activity in the air and seas around Taiwan has fanned tensions. The PRC has also ended the diplomatic truce between Taipei and Beijing by enticing several countries to break diplomatic ties with Taiwan. Such steps, as well as efforts by Beijing to exclude Taiwan from participating in international fora like the World Health Assembly, harm cross-strait relations and run counter to Beijing's own professed goal of winning the support of the people of Taiwan. The United States remains concerned by China's growing military capabilities and its continuing unwillingness to renounce the use of force against Taiwan. We oppose unilateral actions by either side aimed at altering the status quo in the cross-straits arena, including, in particular, of course, any resort to force. Beijing's efforts to unilaterally alter the status quo undermine the framework that has enabled peace, stability, and development for decades. The United States firmly believes that the people of Taiwan should be able to determine their leaders free of external threats, disinformation, and other forms of malign influence. As the Taiwan Relations Act states, it is the policy of the United States, and again an important quote here, to consider any effort to determine the future of Taiwan by other than peaceful means, including by boycotts or embargoes, a threat to the peace and security of the Western Pacific area and of grave concern to the United States. Given the deep and abiding interest in cross-strait stability, the United States strongly supports dialogue between the two sides. Direct authoritative channels of communication are essential to managing issues effectively and avoiding miscalculation. It is incumbent upon China to restore productive dialogue and to avoid further escalatory or destabilizing moves. The United States has urged consistently that Taiwan's ultimate status be resolved peacefully to the satisfaction of the people on both sides of the strait. We encourage both sides of the strait to demonstrate patience, flexibility, and creativity in resolving their differences. I will close by affirming that the United States strives to improve our economic partnership with Taiwan, support Taiwan's self-defense capabilities, deepen the bonds of friendship between our two peoples, 
and promote Taiwan's ability to make positive contributions to the international community. Taiwan is not just a vital and reliable partner in the Indo-Pacific region, it is a force for good in the world. That is why Taiwan merits our continuing support. Thank you, Jim. Ambassador Akao. Thank you, Roy. And I have always had a great respect for MBR for its role in US foreign policy making, particularly in Asia, and particularly on IPR protection. So it's a great honor to be a part of this conversation. And I, you talked about, touched a little bit on the 19th century sort of a grand scheme of, international grand scheme of things. And of course, that its famous quote is by Lord Palmerston, there's no eternal allies or no perpetual enemies. And there are only perpetual and eternal interests, and that's what we follow, or something like that. And I, is that relevant in today's world? And of course, it's not. Because that statement was made in the midst of a balance of power, you know, the balance of power world in the 19th century in the UK. So for starters, uh, it's, uh, it was repeating that today's allies, alliances, unlike the 19th century Europe, are deeply fundamentally grounded in a shared universal values, such as democracy, a rule of law, human rights. And what is unique about the United States is that it has many of such alliances. And that is not the case for other strategic competitors. And Japan and the United States uh, share those fundamental value system and in universal values. And I, our alliance is firmly grounded in such a universal value system. So oftentimes, uh, some leaders in Asia you know, talk about so-called Asian values, and I, as opposed to universal ones, and I, that's not something that we, we believe in. So in my view, that uh, the building on universal shared, shared, uh, universal shared values, alliance works best when they share common assessment about security challenges in the region. That's number one. And number two, alliance works best when there is a common shared view about the region in the future, and I align direction about it. And I, number three, alliance works best when there are stakeholders in the field whether they're in the government or uh, in uniform or in other entities uh, working together and are working very hard to achieve those goals. And I'm happy to say that Japan-US alliances meets every one of those criteria. Our assessment uh, views and visions in the fields of regional security, political, economic, and trade situations closely aligned. I mean, for example, in the press, state, press statement of the recent 2 plus 2 foreign and defense ministerial meetings, we made it clear that Japan and the United States, and I quote, shared concern that geopolitical competition and coercive attempts to undermine international rules, norms, and institutions present challenges to the alliance. And also, this is another quote, we shared concern about rapidly uh, evolving technological advancement in the new domain, including space, cyberspace, and an electromagnetic spectrum. So when it comes to people working in the field, working very hard to strengthen our alliance, of course, it starts from, from top. Prime Minister Abe and President Trump had uh, 11 summit meetings and 32 telephone conversations to date. It's kind of difficult to count all those things, but... <laughs> 
but we counted anyway. <laughs> and we in the government fortunate in a sense that the cross coordination and cross conversation at the top level gives us guidance in addressing issues of our mutual concern, such as North Korea, North Korea or South and East China Sea, IPR protection, and 5G, and so forth. And both governments are constantly engaged in consultations and coordinations. And our people are in uniform at the forefront of alliances when they conduct joint exercises, whether in the South and East China Sea or Japan Sea. So in a nutshell, our alliance with the United States has not been more enduring, more robust than today. So let me just elaborate my points a bit further, taking up a few topics of concern. Number one, North Korea. The, our objectives in North Korea uh, is Korean Peninsula without nuclear and other WMD, including their means of delivery in a comprehensive, verifiable, irreversible manner. And I, we are on the same page on that. We are also are working very closely to, to strengthen our sanction regime under United States security resolutions. And I also we are working very closely on preventing ship, what is called a ship-to-ship -ship transfer which is a means of uh, uh, circumvention of those uh, sanctions. And of course, it's quite important to maintain and strengthen extended uh, deterrences by the United States. And I, and I also, we are, uh, we are jointly uh, training in the Japan Sea. And also, that, the partnership between, among US, Japan, and, and I, uh, ROK is also very important. And the second subject would be the South China Sea and the Indo-Pacific. You know, for us in the region, the freedom of navigation and overflight is the global commons. And that is why Japan and the United States are firmly opposed to unilateral coercive attempts to change the status quo in the East China Sea and South China Sea. What enabled the countries in the region to enjoy freedom of navigation and overflight is mostly due to the presence of the United States naval forces there. US forward deployment is uh, contributing and a U.S. forward deployment is based on, based on the Japan-U.S. alliance. It's contributing greatly to the U.N. naval presence in the Pacific. In the South China Sea, ships, naval ships belonging to Japanese naval self-defense forces have conducted jointly with the United States Navy all the time since, uh, since, 20, since last year. This vision of the free and open Indo-Pacific it is our alliance, Japan-U.S. Uh, alliance serves as a cornerstone of peace and prosperity in this Indo-Pacific region. So it is no coincidence that the vision of a free and open Indo-Pacific comes from both governments in rather independent manner, because we firmly believe in that. And I, our vision, Japan's vision of a free, free and open Indo-Pacific contains three pillars. The first pillar is maintenance of fundamental principles of international order. So any, you know, that the Indo-Pacific order or world should be based on that. The second is that the promotion of a sustainable economic development and connectivity through quality infrastructure in energy, digital, transportation. And the third pillar would be maintain, maintenance of peace and security stability, particularly in the area of maritime law enforcement capacity building. So in order to achieve those objectives, it is crucial for Japan and the United States to widen networked structure of alliance and particularly strengthen partnership with other countries like ASEAN, India, Australia, and others. So at this point, it would be remiss of me if I didn't talk, say a few words about Taiwan and our bilateral relations with Taiwan. Taiwan is a true friend of ours, 
and I particularly a time at the time of need, such as the East Japan Great Earthquake. Taiwan was one of those countries who came to us to show solidarity. And our economic and other practical interactions between Japan and Taiwan has been flourished these days. So in, in terms of the meaningful participation in, of the international space for Taiwan, we believe that in areas such as international public health governance, there should not be a gap in regional undertakings to address crisis management in public health fields. So that's why Japan supports uh, Taiwan's participation as an observer in international institutions, such as World Health Assembly, as Ambassador just mentioned. And I, the, the Foreign Minister Kono actually tweeted uh, the, our support in the last month. And Japan's also a very happy partner in this uh, GCTF that the ambassador just mentioned. And I just let me say a few words on bilateral relations with China, as this assembly, BR assembly, is dominated by China-related issues. And I just talk, I'm just say a few words on our bilateral relationship. And that the rise of China presents opportunities and challenges, you know, maybe more of the latter than the former <laughs> in today's world. Yet in China's not so transparent political structure, we often wonder if message or concerns have really reached to or come across with the top leadership. And Prime Minister Abe is a strong believer in getting his message or concerns directly with leaders. And I, of course, obviously we have many concerns. But Prime Minister Abe is a firm believer talking to uh, leaders in other countries, particularly those countries we have concerned over. So it took seven years, actually, for Prime Minister Abe to visit China. And his visit took place in October, October of last year in a bilateral context. No prime minister has ever paid an official visit to China uh, since 2011, and no Chinese president has visited Japan since 2010, which is not normal, purportedly due to the Senkaku Island. And over the last eight, during that last eight years, there were many, many of the things that China, China did. The cancellation of high-level meetings is one. The embargo of the earth, uh, rare earth is another. But with this, Prime Minister Abe to Japan, I mean, his visit to China, our bilateral relations were back to what we call normal, normal track. By that, I mean leaders could talk to each other directly. But some pundits, I mean, I'm very frank here, that some pundits here at the time argued that the Prime Minister Abe's visit to China did disservice to the United States because that the United States is at the time of pushing back on China on many fronts, and I'd argue that the Prime Minister's Abe's visit reflected the kind of so-called insurance policy on our part because of the situation here, but nothing is further from the truth. As I said, the Prime Minister Abe's visit to China took place in the context of bilateral dynamics, so we are now back on track. Our objective is actually aimed at leveraging our resources, diplomatic, economic, or political resources, to create a space where China can play a more constructive role in the regional undertakings. So, so it is no small achievement that Prime Minister Abe, when he visited China, agreed with President Xi on the importance of the implementation of all United States, United Nations Security Council resolutions vis-a-vis -vis North Korea, or 
hold in the first expert meeting of the maritime and aerial communication mechanism between China and Japan uh, in order to forestall any unintended uh, consequences. And the signing of the agreement of maritime search and rescue is also a no small accomplishment. So let me conclude my remarks by touching on a kind of promising area of huge potentiality in the context of a Japan-US alliance, which is science and technology cooperation. As we know that China is aggressively developing artificial intelligence, robotics, and other advanced technologies under the state's uh, initiative as reflected in China manufacturing in 2025. And against such a background, uh, Japan and the United States need to take a leadership role in creating an enriched innovation ecosystem through finding a balance between uh, ensuring of security and privacy, privacy protection and the creation of innovative, deregulated environment to foster new business opportunities. So you know that the cutting edge uh, potentially game-changing technologies such as artificial intelligence could have a huge impact on the security of the region. So the potential area for cooperation includes space. Japan is in the process of uh, completing its quasi-Zeni satellite system. It's kind of a Japanese version of GPS and I also area of artificial intelligence. We are lagging in terms of the computing itself, but I, you know, that society is delving into a sort of what is called the international in internet of the things. So all the equipment is linked uh, through the internet and website so that we are, we have a advantage in manufacturing the material things. So that's, that's, uh, that's also a great area of potential. And the quantum science, including the quantum computing, is another. So those are the things that I, uh, we need to work further in the future. And so with that, let me conclude my remarks. Thank you very Thank much. You. Well, before I turn to the audience for their questions, let me ask each of you one question related to your remarks and to the, the broad sweep of issues. First, for Ambassador Moriarty, you, I'd highlight two words from your presentation. The first is unique, and the second is enduring. And my take of your presentation is that the unique aspects of the U.S. relationship with Taiwan are related to Taiwan's status, to cross-strait tensions, to the claims that Beijing has on Taiwan. The enduring speaks to the bulk of your presentation, which is all of the other things that we do together, very few of which make the headlines. In Washington, we focus on the unique, and yet all the other issues uh, are worthy at least of as much attention. I'd appreciate if you could take a minute or so and help us as this very informed audience think of strategies to highlight the strengths, the enduring pieces of our relationship with Taiwan, such that we're not consumed with focus on the unique, which I think can be to the detriment of, the, of our important relationship. And to Ambassador Akawa, thank you for a, a really sweeping presentation of Japan's interests and how it's accomplishing them it speaks to the, to the point I made at the introduction, which is in 2009, there were real worries about the durability of our bilateral relationship. And here we are a decade later, and you said it, and I firmly agree that our alliance across the board in all dimensions has really never been at a stronger place. As an experienced diplomat from Japan, I would appreciate, and I think the audience would like to hear your assessment of as you look at that, this last decade, what are the elements that have led to a Japan that is such a different place from where it was a decade ago and why that alliance relationship is in so much stronger a place? Jim, let me start with you. Well, I'm going to start off and take a slightly different spin on okay. your two words, unique and enduring. People don't really focus on the fact 
that it is the Taiwan Relations Act that is at the core of U.S. policy towards Taiwan in the sense that you had an act, a piece of legislation, almost unanimously passed by Congress and signed by the president, stating that, in effect, the status of Taiwan is of great concern to the U.S. and any attempts to change it unilaterally through non-peaceful means and without the consent of the people of Taiwan would be a serious matter of concern that would indeed force consultations with Congress. So what does that do? That puts limits. It, def it puts a definition in. And I know somebody out here can come up with something like that. But I can't really on my own think of any other bilateral mm. relationship that the U.S. conducts right now that is governed not by policy, not by policy that can be changed by a president unilaterally, but by law, that by a law that has specific requirements in it, specific responsibilities, and notes the responsibility of Congress for this relationship. I think that's unique. That has given us the, cons not constraints, but the freedoms within which we have built the enduring part of your two-word relationship here. The enduring now, I would argue, is based on a huge convergence of interests. The biggest, the most obvious one being the transformation of Taiwan itself. You know, you have what we call a beacon of democracy. Nobody even thinks about it. I just say it and everybody says, oh yeah, yeah, Jim, that's a slogan, get on with it. What does that mean? That means if you run into any young Taiwanese under 35 years old, they have a democracy chip in their DNA. They expect to elect their leaders. They expect to be able to criticize their leaders. They expect to be able to throw them out if they're unsatisfied with them. And that's refreshing. And that is not found in too many democracies that are as young as Taiwan's. It also helped the economic relationship flourish. You know, you do have that basis that says we are going to continue in the economic ties. You do look at things in terms of the enduring portion of the relationship and say, well, where does this lead to in the future? There were about 10 or 15 years where it was fashionable to assert that China's rise would inevitably lead to a splitting apart with Taiwan on our part as we looked, as we weighed U.S. interests with respect to China as, a as opposed to U.S. interests with respect to Taiwan. That has changed dramatically uh, just over the past two or three years. It has changed dramatically because, let's face it, the biggest issue in the U.S.-China relationship is not Taiwan. Anytime you hear a Chinese official say that, you should be tempted to ask, well, isn't it the Chinese desire to get the United States out of Asia. That's the biggest issue in the US-China relationship right now. It is continued expressions of will on the part of China to break our alliances, to replace us as the dominant power in Asia. And frankly, if you look at it in just straight out geostrategic terms, you look at the mirror image from the US perspective of what China sees. If you follow Chinese strategic writings closely, they talk about needing the ability to be able to get through the first island chain. And we talk about the same thing. 
we've been talking about it since the 1850s, the need to be able to get through that first island chain and access Asia, not establish bases in Asia, but have free and open access whenever, where, wherever we wanted through that first island chain to the Asian heartland. And for whatever reason, China has decided that that's not, it seems to be something that they don't want to see anymore. That's the real cause for friction in the US-China relationship. And inevitably, that only underscores all the more the importance of Taiwan to US policymakers, to US Congress. And if you think about it, that's what's changing US opinions, this acknowledgment that China would really like to replace us in Asia. Thank you. Ambassador Akawa, you included a great statement about Japan's relations with Taiwan as well. And so I wanted to acknowledge that before you go into your response to my question. Thank you for that piece of your okay. presentation. Uh, is a, I guess your question is what has changed Japan over the last decade, I guess. What are the factors? Yeah. The first and foremost factor is the political stability. You know, the, the Prime Minister has been in power for almost like eight years, seven or eight years. And I, before him, uh, there's a prime minister almost like every year. And I, in that kind of political atmosphere, there's very little room to take leadership. For some reason, I don't have any answer to that, but Japan is one of the very few advanced democracies not seeing sort of a populist, major populist movement. So that's also a contributing factor. Secondly, of course, the regional situation starting with North Korea and also China. People are you know, beginning to understand that our region is, you know, that there is a great amount of liberal concern for maintaining and uh, strengthening our security. So that's the regional situation is, I guess, that another aspect. Third aspect is this great East Japan earthquake, which took mm. place 2011, and that was huge awakening call for Japanese. Before the earthquake, uh, support for our set of defense forces, uh, of course uh, it's you know, 70% or so, but after that it's almost like close to 90%. Also what is called a Tomodachi operation, friendship operation that the, United, the US forces they are conducted. I mean, everyone is grateful for that. So, so those are, I guess, the three things that I can come up, or come up with. <laughs> Thank you, that's very, very helpful.